it's so great to be here. It's great to be, uh, this is our second Christmas in Durban. For those of you that may be new or don't know who I am, um, I'm, just, I'm not just the guy that runs around with his hair on fire. Uh, you know, um, my friend Chris uh, was having coffee with me the other day. He's like, what's wrong with you? you? You seem more relaxed than you usually are. And I was like, well, I'm working on that. Uh, my name is Pastor Joel. Um, I'm one of the, the pastoral team here. My wife, Amy, and my, our four kids came to, uh, to Durban a year ago, November. And uh, we have just fallen in love with uh, Durban, with South Africa, with you. And uh, we're just so privileged to be here and be part of what God is doing. And it's exciting to be part of this. And I'm excited to be in South Africa at Christmas time. Um, because not only do we have Christmas Eve when we do that, but then you have Christmas Day. And so that's always special for all of us. But then, but then there's a tradition here, I think so, that today, the day after Christmas, is actually a holiday. It's Boxing Day, right? Uh, I mean, I think it's fantastic. I mean, you just take a holiday and you go for it. I mean, I was, told, I was told when I got here that, like, hey, you better start ordering stuff beforehand because, like, in the middle of December, things shut down, and they take holiday, right? And they're like, see ya until late next year. And I'm like, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> and, I, and I wonder, I wonder why Americans don't do that. I wonder, like, come on. I mean, today's the day after Christmas, and, you know, the letdown of kind of like the night before Christmas and like, or the night of Christmas, like, it's over, Right. Um, my, br my brother was born the day after Christmas, so he thinks it's a national holiday, but nobody else does, and I'm not about to encourage that. But I just wonder why we, why we don't extend the holidays. You know, when it comes to Christmas, I wonder about a lot of things. They say it's the most wonderful time of year, isn't it? Full of wonder. And there is a lot of wonder. In, in other words, like, you know, you felt it. Maybe if you're a young person or, or an older person, I think we're all a child of heart. Maybe as Christmas came, you know, you didn't want to admit it, but you wonder what you're getting for Christmas. I mean, I was wondering, am I going to get a new bry? Because I need one. And then I let my little, my little inner child go, and like, maybe it's going to be that miracle Christmas, and maybe there will be a Land Rover Defender in my, in my, you know. I mean, I'm like, hey, you know, miracles happen, right? Miracles happen, you know, it's a time for miracles, I wonder. But, you know, maybe you were wondering, you know, like, what, uh, what you know, men, you know, maybe you, you were wondering if she's going to like what you got her. And I've had those Christmases where she didn't like what I got her. But maybe you're, you're here and you're wondering if he got you anything. Did he remember? And I wonder, the one thing that I always remember, because growing up in Christmas, and I, I post this on Facebook, I, I, I realized that as you grow up, Thinking about Christmas, you're in a, in a Christian home. Christmas can become very casual, can be very, you know, familiar, and it can become almost cliche, right? And so, you know, you stop and just things that just are, are floating around, they're out there, they're, they're playing in the, in, the, in the grocery stores and in the mall, they're on the radio and everywhere in between. You know, one of the things I wonder is, where do we get all those Christmas songs? I wonder where we got all those. I mean, we love kind of the traditional songs. I mean, I loved our Christmas Eve service. I mean, it was great. I was part of the planning of it, and I saw the lineup of songs. Like, it's going to be great. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you know, Angels We Have Heard on High, Joy to the World. But then I was stunned in awe and utter delight that it was a different variation. That it's like, I heard the songs I knew, but they were different, and they, it was awesome. But, you know, there's other songs that, you know, we, we hear at Christmas time, and I wonder where we got those. Like, the song, like, it's I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas. Have you ever driven in snow? It's, 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 it's of the devil, okay? Where, where, where I live, and like everybody loves, oh, I would love for it to snow at Christmas, but none of you know how to drive in it. And we've been locked, we've been locked out. Our church is on, a, the church I come from was on a hill, and it's like straight up, and there's trees, and even when the snow begins to melt, the trees block the sun, and we were locked out of our church for five weeks because we couldn't get up the driveway because of a white Christmas. So I wonder why you're dreaming of that. 
I wonder, maybe like Silent Nights. Where do we get that song? Ladies, come on, testify. Have you given birth to a baby in a stable it, it, with no pain medication? Was there anything silent about that? No. Or maybe, you know, the song, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But, you know, when we compare it to the first Christmas 2,000 years ago, uh, or even in the last two years, perhaps you've been saying, this has been the, the, anything but the most wonderful time of year. Or two years. Who knew that two years ago that we would be enter in to a worldwide pandemic that would literally lock us out, lock us down, and, and, and send us for a loop? I'm not really sure if that was the top ten requested song of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's been pretty awful. But, you know, we, we still buy into the idea of Christmas, don't we? And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's marketing. I don't know if it's the Hallmark Channel. Thank God we can't get that here because I think that's of the devil and everything, because I, I, I helped put up these trees, and I was like, kind of like, in my head was stuffed under a branch, and my arm was tangled up in one of them, and I was trying to put the lights on and everything, and I was thinking, I was thinking two things. One, I gotta get this done, but two, it's, I'm a guy, and I don't have a single decorating bone in my body, and my wife's gonna walk in here, and she goes, it's not gonna look like a Hallmark, Hallmark movie. And, and I'm just, I'm just I'm like, where do we get this? We, we get an idyllic sense of Christmas, what it ought to be, what it ought to involve, and it doesn't seem to relate to our everyday reality, and yet we're still pulled into that. You know, I mean, think about this. I mean, we get sold a, a, a real vision of what things ought to be, and I got a picture here and everything. It's like, you know, Pinterest? Pinterest, Pinterest is ridiculous and everything, because look what you can do, and then look at what we try. Look, look, what we, look what we can do, and look what ends results. We try, to, we try to make an idyllic Christmas, and so often Christmas is not the image and the experience that we get sold. And any one, any one, of, the most common, one of the most common phrases of Christmas that I really think is, is really counterintuitive to the reality we live in is the phrase, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. You see, when you really think about the Christmas story, there was nothing peaceful about it. You know, again, we're sold this idyllic idea, uh, you know, like in silent nights. And Mary is in that stable, no pain medication. One of, Amy delivered one of our child with no pain medication. She wasn't exactly asking for it. And she made it happen. I couldn't believe what she did and everything. But there was nothing silent about it. It wasn't anything, all is calm, all is bright. No, 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 no. See, there's nothing, there was nothing peaceful. There was no peace on earth on that first Christmas. When you consider just the, the political conditions in that area of the world at that time 2,000 years ago, this was a nation living under occupation. This was a nation living under an oppressive worldwide empire, a military regime, and there was an active uh, violent insurgency going on at any moment of time within that country where the Christmas story took place. Consider the religious conditions of the Roman Empire at this time. I didn't know if you know this, but when you read in the Gospel of Luke, it's an amazing account. It tells us, it sets the Christmas story, not in a mythological realm, but in a place and time in recorded history. In Luke 1, it says, during the reign of Caesar Augustus, in the, in the second year of Caesar Augustus, when Curius was the governor of Syria, Luke is actually setting it in a recorded timeline, not just generally speaking, but specifically. Some people will say, well, it didn't happen because Curius wasn't the governor of Syria in the second year. And he goes, actually, there was two governors in that time. Luke is giving a very specific time that you can nail it. 
but more specifically, the religious implications of what happens when, when, when God's son, when the son of God steps onto the earth, did you know that he was moving into somebody else's territory? Because when he arrived, there was already a son of God on the throne. You see, Caesar Augustus was originally, his name, his real name was Octavius, and he was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was the dictator of Rome, and after he died, he was deified by the Roman Senate. So he was basically declared God, and as the nephew and the heir apparent, basically legally the son of God, you see that there was already a son of God on the throne. And how do you think he would feel about that, knowing that another person had been declared the son of God. See, two people can't sit on the throne at the same time. Think about the invasive nature of this immaculate conception and birth. Think about Mary. Ladies, whether you're married now, whether you're going to be married, whether you want to be married, think about the idyllic and the perfect pattern of that, where everything you're planning, everything you're hoping, not only your future, but the future of your family is at stake in making this marriage happen. And suddenly, uh, an unexpected baby arrives. Think about the scandalous perception that that ensued. See, so oftentimes we idealize it and everything. We don't realize that this young lady was not married. She was betrothed, but she was declared that she was going to be pregnant. How do you exp explain that? How was she going to explain that to her fiance? How was she going to explain that to her parents? How was she going to explain that to her community? And in that realm, she was, it says she was already betrothed. In other words, she was engaged and basically legally married without the physical consummation. And so therefore, not only was this scandalous and that she was pregnant outside of marriage, but now it was considered adultery. So she's not only, she's not only uh, violated some purity laws and everything, but now she's committed, what, she's broken one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. How, that doesn't sound very peaceful to me. Think about the ramifications afterwards, that this isn't just a one and done. This isn't something you can exist. But she's going to have to live, he, Joseph, her fiancé, is going to have to live making this explanation for the rest of their lives. Think about this. You tell the story of what it was like. We tell the story all the time of our firstborn, Sydney, and it was anything but simple. We thought, she, we thought she died in the womb three times in one week. For seven days, we lived, lived with an absolute terror that if Amy moved, she would start bleeding and we would lose that baby. Everyone wants to talk about the miraculous story of their firstborn or any child that has arrived in bed and try to explain a baby that wasn't expected and in those conditions. That doesn't sound very peaceful. And then think about the travel conditions that they had to endure. It says in that day he called a census and everyone had to report to their own town to be registered. And Joseph said, and you read the story, Joseph had to take, his, take Mary, his betrothed, they were legally weighed, and then they both had to travel to Bethlehem. That doesn't seem very big. You've seen the movies, you've seen the TV shows, riding on a donkey. Do you realize that was 190 kilometers over uneven and rough terrain? There is nothing easy about this. And then, if that's not bad enough, you arrive and you cannot find a place in the inn. And the only place to deliver a baby is in the unsanitary conditions of a first century stable. And then, if that's not bad enough, you realize the fallout of this birth, that you arrive, you're a stranger, you're really only there to register and take care of some legal documentation, but as a result of you being there and this baby being born, the king, Herod, is so terrified and threatened by your position that he orders a community-wide infanticide of every child under two years old, that your baby and your baby and your baby are going to die because some stranger's baby showed up. And Mary and Joseph have to live with that. 
peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Doesn't sound like anything like what we've been brought up to believe. So why, so in the natural realm, think about it, in the natural realm, there is nothing peaceful about the Christmas story. So why would the Bible make such a seemingly empty promise? I mean, we believe the Bible is God's word. We believe the Bible is divinely inspired. We believe that in every, we believe that every single word, every single phrase, and how it's constructed is divinely inspired, and it is true, and it is. So why would the Bible make such an empty promise, peace on earth, goodwill towards men? Is it perhaps because we have fallen unintentionally and succumbed to the wooing of the world in making an easy definition of that word peace? You see, we would naturally say, if I asked you to define peace, probably in some way, shape, or form, it would look something like this. It would be, we define peace as freedom from disturbance, quiet, and tranquility. Believe me, I hear this word in many different ways because my wife is a woman of peace. You want to you woo her, give her peace. You want to romance her, give her peace. It's kind of funny. I want to romance her, so I leave her alone. <laughs> she just wants some peace gotta know that love language but the new testament when they use this word remember that we're looking at an english word and we we define that translation of a translation in the way we would translate it but the new testament word for peace comes from the greek word and it's a word that is used using irene and it has a far different definition you see instead of freedom from disturbance quiet and tranquility the word Irene is translated as joining what had previously been separated or disturbed. You see, we were separated from God. The Bible says that, that sin separated us from God. All had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin are death. And death is not just the body ceasing to operate, but death is separation from God forever. And God couldn't tolerate that. There was no peace. There was a separation between God and man. And God said something has to be done. So... He declared there, there would be peace on earth. There would, I would close the gap. You see, the, the amazing thing, and my, my family has been going through the same devotional as Pastor Randy and his family, looking at the names of God. And we had a question, I was like, he is, why would Jesus be born as a baby? It's because at the very, at the end of the day, it's like, so he could look you straight in the eye at, at, at the end of the age and say, I know exactly what you've been through. You th three-dimensionalized and everything, he, he fell, he stumbled, he knew people who had died. He struggled. He was ostracized. He was neglected. Teenagers, he knew what it was like to maybe let his heart pitter-patter in an innocent sense of, uh, uh, of youthful affection and everything and maybe be spurned. He could, the Bible says in Hebrews, it says, he is a high priest that knows he has, he has suffered anything and everything just like you, but without sin. But he closed the gap. No longer can we say, well, you're up there and I'm down here. You're up there in glory, but I'm down here in hell. No, he said, that rather than you try to come up to me, I will come down to you and I'll close the gap. And there will finally be peace on earth and goodwill to men. One of my favorite scholars, William Barclay, said, it's, it's, peace is not just freedom from trouble, but it's everything that makes for the man's fullest good. The people that we aspire to be, the people that we respect, are the ones who didn't have an easy life but have overcome the greatest odds, haven't they? They would say that the hardest the situations are the ones that shape them the most. And we say that, that peace on earth, goodwill toward men, is not necessarily avoiding in every trouble, but is everything, the fullest of everything, for your good. But inside we still have that tension, don't we? I may have disturbed you today by, by ruffling up your, your idea of what peace is. 
because there's that ideal picture we have of Christmas. The perfect decorations, the perfect table settings, the perfect meal, the perfect response to the gifts that we give. But the Christmas story, the promise of peace on earth, goodwill towards men, the very real world that we live in where things seldom go according to plan. Believe me, I know. I know. In 2017, no, skip 14, I think I feel like my family had hit like our stride. Life was good. My kids were getting older. We were, we were doing things. We had finally gotten out of debt. Life was good. And I felt like I had arrived at a point where I could pursue some of my, my, my personal dreams. My family was taken care of financially. We had kind of navigated some difficult situations. We were healthy. Ministry was, was going well. And I felt like I'm going I'm to I'm try to edify myself. And I'm going I'm to pursue a master's degree, something I'd always wanted to do. And on a Friday morning before work, I came and I signed up for my master's. I just, somehow it just all came together. In a few hours, I was enrolled and I was excited and I couldn't wait to tell Amy. She had said, when you're ready, I think we're ready and you, you can go for it. And I was going to pursue this dream to edify myself, to be equipped more effectively for ministry. And I don't know what happened Friday night. I, I really don't know what happened Friday night. I don't know what, why I didn't tell Amy. But I didn't get a chance to tell Amy until Saturday morning. But Saturday morning was an off day for us. I'm going to relax talk about how this how we're going to navigate this and I was already downstairs I was excited to share with my wife but before I could get the words out before I could take out my plan she took out an ultrasound and said guess what <laughs> needless to say I didn't handle it very well I confess I didn't handle it well at all Life is what happens when you're making plans, and it wasn't peaceful. It turned me for a loop. I can tell you I was the definition of shock. My kids even remember as young as they were, this was six years ago, seven years ago, in fact, seven years ago. And all my kids remember that day that dad walked out the door, and he didn't come back. I walked the streets for hours. I can't afford this. I can't do this. I don't want this. There was no peace. There was no peace. Now, before you judge me, and people did judge me, they saw the shock on my face, they saw the disruption. How am I supposed to do this all? And they said, Joel, this is a gift. This is life. This is a new life. And I said, you know what? <laughs> I have enough life. <laughs> I got a life to the full. And I can't do this. But before you judge me, I want you to ask yourself, how do I tend to respond when life is interrupted? And that might not be a big deal for you. Maybe you've longed for a child and you're saying, dude, don't complain. You got more and I don't have any. And I, I understand that. I get that. And I'm not, tell, I'm not saying anything, saying that I shouldn't have had this. But in that moment, what do you do when life is interrupted? You wanted a child, but now you can't have children. You wanted that job, you fought for that job, you studied for that job, and you didn't get it. You built that business, but your business now failed. Everything you work for is gone. That marriage you had is over. And maybe, maybe because of COVID, everything has been changed. But someone, I came across a quote back then and said this, real, con real contentment must come from within. You and I cannot change or control the world around us but we can change and control 
the world within us. That's the only world you can change and you can control. And so reading that and settling down, the word of God came through the lips of my wife, who was just as interrupted, who was just as disturbed, who was just as discouraged. I won't quote her age, but she was not an age exactly of the, the best age to have a child. But she's, she finally came, and she's a woman of prayer, and she came back and she says, Joel, here's what I really feel God is laying on us. And it's not an easy word, but it's a word for us. And she said, God must really trust us to give us this gift. And if you know anything about that little boy, he's been diagnosed on the autism spectrum. His perspective is different. His approach is different. He has sensory issues. Life is not simple. Life is not easy many times. But thanks to being here in Durban, he's getting better. He's getting better. And what I really think when I realize, remember that statement that Amy said, it, if you break down that statement, God must really Trust us to give this gift. This wasn't a pithy phrase. This was, this, this, this was really true. And the main point that I'm trying to make here is that peace is not found in unpacking our problems, but, in, but instead planting ourselves upon God's promises. Let me just say that again. Peace is not found in unpacking our problems. It's not a life of tranquility and being problem-free, but it's planting ourselves on God's promises. God must really trust us. Now, one piece of good news is that we're not the only ones to struggle with these issues. So I want to take you, have you just, if you have your Bibles, it's going to be up here on the screen for a moment. In the spirit of Christmas, just, let's, let's just look at the rest of the story, a piece of the story. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And I want to take you on a tour and help you find yourself in this story. Because this is truly a story for everyone. For those who like order, who like organization and precision and thoroughness. And I can see a few of you out there as I get to know you. Who need organization. You need precision. You thrive in it. You find comfort and reassurance in it. Can I just tell you that you need to get into the gospel of Luke. You will love this gospel. For those who are struggling with life. For those who are feeling like you can't keep up. For those of you that figure that can't figure it out, who are overcome and feel like you're just on the outside, looking in on everyone else's success and seeing everyone else thrive, Luke has something for you. For those who are skeptical about the Bible, for those of you that, that think it's full of fairy tales and human fiction, can I tell you, I, I think I know where you got that from, and that's not from God. But you should consider studying the book of Luke for yourself, and here's why. As I said before, the Gospel of Luke is the, is first, is the easiest for us Gentiles to understand. It's actually written for us. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're white South African, black South African, Indian uh, you know, heritage or anything in between or an American. This is actually the universal gospel. Luke was a Gentile, and so he wrote it for his audience, for all of us. He doesn't focus on the Old Testament, so you don't need to know that, although it's good for other things. He translates Hebrew words into Greek words, which are much easier for the people in our day to understand. But second, he, Luke was a doctor. And why is that important? Well, because for a reason, because, because he was a doctor, he had great sympathy for people who were suffering. William Barclay said that it's been said that a minister sees men at their best, 
A lawyer sees people at their worst, but a doctor sees men as they are. Luke saw men and women and loved them all. But maybe the third most interesting thing about the Gospel of Luke is that Luke is very thorough. He's very detail-oriented. Because you see how he begins his gospel, and I, I quoted it at the very beginning. In many of under, he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. In other words, a lot of people have tried to tell the story, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses. Luke is not making this up. Luke went to the people who saw it, and not always the people that had a motive to prove it right. Because in that day, if you testified to something wrong, that was breaking the law, and you were punished for it. And you couldn't spread a lie because there were other people who lived in the same place at the same time in the same area, and they could disprove you. But Luke would go to the eyewitnesses and he'd say, did this happen? And he thoroughly investigated. In fact, he says that. I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, we don't know who that is, but someone who was, was, was seeking God, wanted to know God and, and Luke, and probably had high standards, because most excellent means he had a high station in life. So Luke better deliver the goods. And Luke says, I'm going to do this so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. You've been taught about peace, but do you have a certainty about peace? Luke wants to give you a foundation from which to plant yourself. And in these four verses, Luke claims that his work is the product of the most careful research. But I, I want to challenge you, but don't interpret his accuracy as being boring. Oh, this is going like, to sound like a Wikipedia article. No, Luke is not anything but boring. Luke is engaging, and I'll tell you why. Because Luke is the gospel of prayer. For those of you that, that, that your prayer is your spiritual gift, then you should be immersed and follow the pattern. If, those, if you are new to, to the Christian life and you don't know how to pray, if you are someone who feels the pressure that I ought to pray more, then you ought to be reading the book of Luke because Luke will teach you to pray. Every situation that Jesus found himself in, before he made a major decision, before he made a major, major move, he would pray. What does that tell, you, tell us about you and I and our decisions? To Luke, the unclosed door, the door was wide open to the throne room of God. And that unclosed door was the most precious in all the world. In the very small time that he had an active ministry, he would actually waste time by going to prayer. And you would see powerful results come out of that. Luke was also the gospel of praise. In Luke, the, the phrase praising God occurs more often than any other New Testament book put together. What does that tell you? And this praise reaches its peak in three of the most beautiful hymns, and they're all related to the Christmas story. Regardless of the conditions I described before, regardless of the circumstances they found themselves in, regardless of the unintentional consequences and the fallout of what was about to take place, there was praise. Mary praised the Lord. Zechariah, even though he was silenced because of his doubts, he saw a miracle come about, and he praised the Lord. And we see, see later on in Luke 2, Simon, a man who, a man who, had, who had, had, was elderly and was waiting upon the Messiah day in, day out, year after year, decade after decade, a faithful persistence finally saw the promise of God. He says, you know what, this is so good, this is good enough for me, I can die right now and be happy to just see my Savior and not even see the results of his life, but just to know that he's here. 
Luke is the gospel of praise. But also Luke is also the universal gospel. All the outstanding characters of Luke is that it's a it's universal gospel. The barriers are down. Jesus Christ is for all men. And the little that I'm learning about South African history, you are very familiar with barriers. Physical barriers, economic barriers, social barriers, racial barriers, traditional barriers. Can I tell you, in the book of Luke, all those barriers come down. They're down, and they stay down. Jesus Christ is for all men. Jesus Christ is for all women, without distinction. But maybe the most interesting thing of all, Luke is the gospel of women. Did you know that? Luke is the gospel for women. Men, you need to read it too, but you need to follow Jesus' lead on how to treat women. Because in Palestine, as in the rest of the ancient world, and unfortunately in most of the world today and everything, women were of low value. In fact, the Jewish morning prayer, a man would thank God that he had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was the viewpoint. And if you catch your husband praying that prayer, slap him. <laughs> slap him. But we see that Luke's gives a very special place of honor and position to women. His birth narrative is told from Mary's perspective. I love that show that we're watching, The Chosen. And there's word that Luke is finishing his gospel. And I don't want to give away too much of the, the detail or anything, but there's a moment where he's interrupted. And the word is, there's more. There's more. And what it is, it's Mary's, it's Mary's story. That this isn't over, Luke, until you hear from Mama. Luke paints a picture of Mary that just absolutely fascinates me. It absolutely fascinates me. And I want to look just for a moment before we close of how Mary models how we can experience peace beyond human comprehension when we submit to God's will and trust him to provide for our needs. See, there's an over-optimistic uh, idea, a characteristic in Luke's gospel that sees through and over the temporal position and conditions into an amazing future. Look with me in verse 26 and 27. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and that virgin's name was Mary. And I want you to notice that Mary was probably one of Luke's primary sources, as we've said, but when he introduced her in his gospel, Luke repeatedly identifies Mary as a virgin, that this is not, this is a miraculous event. This is not biologically and humanly possible. And normally, we, when we, while we don't think too much about that, to, for Luke to continually draw attention to this detail is more than a bit unusual. Because again, as we said, this was scandalous. This was not a peaceful, welcome, expected situation. This, in fact, was an interruption that Mary didn't need in her life. And it wasn't the only interruption either. Look carefully at verse 8. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now try to imagine, put yourself in her place. Try to imagine what you put yourself in a place. This is not normal. This is not every day. And what was running through Mary's mind? But I also want you to, to catch on to the phrase, the Lord is with you. And see, if you know your Bible, that same phrase was, was used of a few other people in the Bible. It was used with Moses. It was used with Gideon. It was the Lord's assurance to the prophet Jeremiah. So in other words, Mary's in good company. Mary, this isn't a curse. This is a blessing. Mary, you're not being ostracized. You're being elevated. Mary was, but, but it says, but Mary didn't see it at this point. This is an interruption. This is a removal of tranquility, isn't it? 
And it says, verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his word and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. What's the catch? Have you ever felt the Lord asking you to do something? And it seems like a good idea, but you wonder what you're going to have to give up. The Lord wants you to do something, but what are you going to have to do in return? And that shows you that she can relate to you. She's thinking probably in her head, this isn't part of my plan. This is not convenient. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Verse 30 says, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And you notice that he repeated that phrase? You have found favor with God. Because, you know, as we said, if you fast forward to the rest of the story and all the ramifications, there's nothing that's showing she has favor. There's no room in the inn. There's no easy way of traveling. There's no, there's no happy ending. There's nothing. Where is the favor in this? And in fact, uh, in fact, just as she, not too long after she hears this, Joseph says, hey, not only are you going to have a baby that you didn't expect, not only are you going to be ostracized before, during, and after, but by the way, you've got to come with me on this 190-mile kilometer journey down south to a town you've never been to, and I don't know when we're going to come back. So here's the rest of the story. Gabriel, the angel says, you will conceive, and you will give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. This is no ordinary child. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And what seems to be a temporal interruption becomes an eternal ramification. It seems dark now, but the light is coming. The temporary problems of your life have eternal reward in the future. That this may seem like a curse, but it is meant to break all curses. And don't kid yourself. Don't ideal yourself. Don't tell, say that, well, I would respond differently. Oh, I would be honored to do this. Oh, I would have loved to take that place. Would this be actually, honestly, your go-to response? Because I see the reality. I see the humility. I see the, I see the way to relate. As Mary's response is natural. It's actually the opposite of Zachariah's uh, how can I be sure of this? But the difference seems to be, there is a difference here in Mary's response. Zechariah, when told that a promise that he had in his life, a, 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 a separation, an emptiness in his life that couldn't be fulfilled, the longing for a son, the longing for heir, when he was told his prayer was answered, when he was told his miracles on the way, he expressed doubt. But Mary expressed only confusion. It's okay to be confused. It's okay not to understand. It's okay to voice it. But Zechariah asked for a sign. He said, I want to see a sign and proof that you're telling the truth. Whereas Mary simply asked for an explanation. She simply said, how can this be? I'm not quite sure. How do you want me to do this? Is, you want me to kind of just follow the, the ways of the, of the man? Or, or how do I do this? She's not, she's not doubting. She's asking. And it's okay to ask. And verse 35 says, the angel answered, I'll tell you how. The Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. What does that say? Is that, that Mary isn't, she's special, but she's not the only one that can be special. Has anyone ever kind of confidently declared to you, I'm God's favorite? You can actually honestly say, take inspiration to say, turn around and say, well, that's funny. So am I. We have something in common. 
Mary, your, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. There's still hope. There's still peace. In other words, unexpected, unrealistic, improbable circumstances is where God does his best work. Do you need some tangible proof? Just look where you're sitting today. Look where you're sitting today. When Pastor Randy came to our staff, was it in April? And said, we need to raise money for a building. I'll be honest, I was quietly sitting back going, <clears throat> yeah, right. Maybe in a year. And before the end of this year, look where you're sitting. Look where you're sitting. In the most improbable, impractical, unrealistic circumstances is where God does his best work. And how do we know this? Because the Bible tells us so. Gabriel said in verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. Don't ever take God out of your peace equation. God is sovereign. God's got this. But more importantly, God has got you. When you're facing the unexpected, when you're facing the unanticipated and you're facing the unthinkable, do not forget to factor in God. Because peace is not about unpacking your problems. It's about planting yourself on God's promises. What would happen if we learned to respond to the unexpected like Mary did? Not with just a, a, a blank, whatever. Sure, it's okay to ask. It's okay to problem solve. It's okay to wonder. But what if we learn to respond to Mary and recognize our position and our place? Look at her response. She said, I am the Lord's servant. See, I can say I serve God when the going is good. I can serve God when God is doing working on my behalf. But what happens when life is interrupted and suddenly God asks us to do something? Asks, uh, God asks us to endure something. God asks us to face something. What is our response? She said this, I am the Lord's servant. I know who I am. Let it be to me as you have said. Let it be to me as you said. So as we get ready to close today, ask yourself, well, what's my part? Peace is not about unpacking your problems. Peace is about planting yourself on God's promises. So what's your, what's your part? Well, I would suggest a few simple things. Number one, embrace the fact that you're never going to get all the answers. For you analytical types that need to know more, sometimes you just can't. I've been counseled by some very intelligent people. Sometimes you say, it is what it is. It is what it is. And boy, that's a really liberating feeling. It is what it is. But embrace the fact that you're never going to get all the answers, just like Mary. Number two, acknowledge the sovereignty of God. God is God, or he's not. If you say you believe God, then believe him and know that he knows what you don't. Remind yourself of your position relating to God. Mary's, Mary's response, I'm the Lord's servant. That's all I am. I don't own anything, I don't control anything, I don't create anything. I'm a steward of anything and everything that I have. And I simply remind myself 
that not only am I a servant of God, but Jesus said, he said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And then later on, he takes it even further. He goes, you know what? He's given us the right to become sons and daughters of God. How would you act as a son of the king? How would you act as a daughter of the king? How could you come boldly before the throne of God and say, I ask for justice. I ask for justice to be declared and rendered on my behalf. Fight my battles for me. I'm a son or daughter of the king. What would that do? I think you need to remind yourself of your position. But lastly, commit yourself to following through with your role. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be as you have commanded. Let it be. Let's do this. Follow through with your role. Someone once said, biblical hope must be rooted in God's sovereign time. Christmas teaches us that promises delayed are not promises denied. It took a long time, but it finally came through. Let me tag on that by saying biblical peace must be rooted in God's sovereign plan. It is what it is. But biblical peace is realizing he's closed the gap. That you are no longer separated, but he's filled that with himself. I'm going to ask our musicians to come as you contemplate that. And as we get ready to close this service, would you please come? Peace is not about unpacking your problems. If you pursue life and say, I'm going to live in a problem-free life, you will live perpetually frustrated. But Christmas is a wonderful time not to simply escape into the ideal portrayals that we see on TV and in marketing. But to stand on solid ground and face a very, very real reality. Because that's much more like the original story. But out of all that turmoil, out of all that trial, out of all that pain, suffering, discouragement, came the greatest story ever told. It literally changed the way we measure time. It changed the course of human history. It is a story that is told in traditions, in symbols. We literally count the days without knowing why we count them anymore. And we have allowed the world to fill us with a frenzy frustration that we will so often say I'm just trying to get through the holidays as if it's something to be survived rather than a holy moment to be saved you can't control what's on the outside you can only control what's in but there is God-shaped hole within all of us that we try to fill with anything and everything else. And if we try to do that on our own, we will live separate from God. We can only experience biblical peace. We can only experience Irene by letting God close the gap. So as you end 2002, excuse me, 2021, back a few years. Maybe you're like me and you just want to forget this year in some ways. 
confess, there are moments where I said, I, as good as things have been, there have been moments where I said, I just, I just, want, to, I just want the year back. Maybe that's you. And that's out of my control, isn't it? When I do that, all I do is I, I just put myself there and I see my problem, but I don't let God say, but look what, like that definition, all those things accumulate for your good. I'm actually healthier. I actually have a different perspective. I've gone through things, I've done things, I've accomplished things that if you told me two years ago I would be doing, I would have been absolutely terrified and paralyzed. You're a doctor told me that your son's autistic. That doesn't go away. But God came in. I got my son. We got help. Doesn't make every day easy, but it makes every day easier. And Christmas, what promise are we given? Not for a salt-free life. Christmas, the Christmas promise can be stated in one word, Emmanuel. God is with us. So how do you get the peace? Would you close your eyes today and just contemplate that? The simple fact is I know anyone, everyone here who's human is probably practicing how to get peace ever since you could remember. You could receive peace the way you receive peace the way you receive gifts at Christmas. You ask, you wait, and then you receive, but all in good time. And just like Mary responded to a seemingly disruptive event in her life, you and I can respond to the unsettling, disrupting, threatening situations that come to our lives, all with perfect peace. Your assignment this week, if you choose to accept it, is to memorize and practice proclaiming that one simple verse in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Heavenly Father, we pray today that we, that those words that were not inspired by human ability, they were inspired by divine Holy Spirit, a willing heart submitted to God. I am your servant. Whatever we're facing, whatever is threatening peace, close the gap. Close the gap, Holy Spirit. I surrender to you today. May I have a different perspective of peace. It's not unpacking my problems. It's planting myself on your promises. No matter how long, no matter how difficult, no matter how unrealistic, no matter how seemingly improbable it is, God, you are a God that works miracles. Holy Spirit, inspire us to proclaim this statement. I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. Heavenly Father, anoint and power your word and anoint and power your people. May they see the difference they make when their peace is not planted what they can acquire, but Lord, they're planted on your promises. Holy Spirit, take us from this place. We are your servants. Let it be as you have said. And all God's people say, amen, amen, amen. God bless you today. Have a great 2022. We'll see you next week.